our team. By the way, here's a, here's a plug for our tech team. They do a phenomenal job. And as you know, we, we record our services and uh, you can go on our app or you can go on our website and you can listen to them. You can even view them back four or five months or so. But uh, as far as the audio goes, they've got all the audio that we could possibly get from all of our sermons. And I don't know when it starts, but it seems like it starts around 2010 or so. So every once in a while, I'll go in that file and I'll just scan through it and I can go back and it's sort of a record of what is done. And I realize I've preached this twice, about every two or three years, and I want to revisit it because I think it is a vital principle uh, for you and I living for God. And so I want to preach to you. If you'll turn to the book of Luke chapter 11 and verse 14, we're going to read it and then uh, we'll take some time and and we'll get back to it and talk about it and exegete it out a little, a little bit. Luke chapter 11, and um, Jesus it says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. And some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So, just in case you're not familiar with Beelzebub, let me put it in plain English. They said the reason Jesus is able to cast out demons is because he has the power of Satan himself. Now you just think about that for a moment. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, but if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he was just trying to help them out because they were saying, well, the reason you can do this is because you're, you know, you're doing it by the power of, of Lucifer and he kind of turns and he says, well, do y'all pray to cast out demons? And if so, are you praying to Lucifer to cast out demons? It just doesn't make any sense. And then Jesus, as he is prone to do, begins to lay out a parable in verse 21. When a full man, strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor, which he trusted, and divides his spoil. The Lord says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And then, this is kind of where I want to focus, he goes and he tells another parable. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds the house swept and put in order. And it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of that person is worse than the first. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast on which you nursed. And Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now I, I, I will tell you that in that parable, cast out a demon, seven come back, I don't know if there's a deeper meaning I'm missing. I'm not going to try to get into some demonology and go from there. But there is a principle found in Luke chapter 11, verse 24 through 26, and it is the law of the vacuum. Now, lest anyone think I'm preaching a message about cleaning apparatuses, uh, you know, just 
calm down. It's not my Mother's Day sermon either. I have a lovely uh, brother-in-law, and uh, he posted something. This is Joel. He posted something on Facebook yesterday or day before. I loved it. He said, he said uh, Chuck Norris is the only man who can go into a feminist rally and come back with shirts ironed. I'm, I didn't necessarily agree with that. I thought maybe he'd come back with sandwiches, but... Um, <laughs> my, my desire tonight is not to preach on vacuuming or my own vacuuming inadequacies or the fact that I hate to vacuum or whatever that might be. But Aristotle, the great philosopher, wrote in his fourth book of physics, he wrote this, and I'm sure you've heard it, nature abhors a vacuum. His premise was that on observation, nature requires every space to be filled even if it's only filled with air. And a, a, a very simple understanding of this is if you could get a, a high-speed camera, one that can slow down uh, uh, the camera speed so you get slow motion, you could stick your hand, your fist, into a bucket of water or you could stick it in the ocean. And, and if the camera is fast enough, when you pull it out, there will remain for the briefest of moments a hole in the water. But we can't ever see that without the aid of high-speed cameras because nature abhors a vacuum. The dent that would have been left by taking your hand out exists only for the briefest of microseconds, but almost instantly it's filled with new water. The law of the vacuum is when something is removed, something is always waiting to rush into its place. Another example of this is... Uh, the parking lot at the mall the last weekend before Christmas. Just watch. One car leaves and they all rush in there. Nature pours a vacuum. Now let me tell you what the law, the spiritual application of the law of the vacuum is not. Um, I, I began to, to read up on this. I was looking at some things today and, and, and I found a writing by Lee uh, uh, Miltier and, and it was obviously kind of a, a new age uh, uh, website writing. This is what the spiritual application is not. And I, I quote, It's said that nature pours a vacuum to have the opportunity to attract what you want, such as a better relationship, more attractive clothes or furniture, you must make room for your desires to manifest. And then they go on to talk about prosperity. That if you want to create prosperity, rid yourself of the things you don't want in your life because it makes room for what you do want. This includes negative thinking, sour attitudes, and beliefs that hold you back. It activates the law of the vacuum. That's not what I want to preach about. I don't care how much stuff you throw away your, at your house. It's not going to make you a millionaire. I've tried it. I can throw away all my, my old fishing lures, and i got to go buy new ones, and it costs money. It just doesn't quite work like this. She go, he goes on to say, a great universal secret of prosperity is passing along to others the things you don't need. Sounds a lot like goodwill to me. The more you give away the material possessions you need, the more love, appreciation, and praise the world will surprise you with. That's just kind of a lot of new age mumbo jumbo. That's not what I want to talk about. But there is a spiritual application of the law of the vacuum. It's seen in the lives of Christians today and, and Julie Ackerman Link wrote this, and I'm not exactly sure where I had found this. I, I've, I've just, I keep quotes, and I, I, sometimes I don't always know exactly who the person is or where it comes from. 
But this is what she said. When the Holy Spirit begins to convict us of sin, the idea of starting a self-improvement plan immediately comes to mind. We put together or we put forth our best efforts to defeat our worst habits. But every attempt to get rid of unclean thoughts, attitudes, and desires is destined to fail because getting rid of one only creates a vacuum in our souls. That as soon as we empty ourselves of one vice, others move in to take its place and we end up just as bad or even worse as we started. I don't need you to raise your hand. I don't need you to agree with me except in your mind, but I'm pretty confident each and every one of us knows exactly what she's talking about. It's amazing how fast we can empty our lives of one sin, if you will, and uh, instantly others will come. Romans chapter 7, I, I love the book of Romans. As I started my, my study of the Bible and going to Bible college, Romans was the first book of the Bible that I was able to study in its entirety. And, and I'm going to tell you, it was amazing how that book came alive. The book of Romans uh, will tell you from the beginning to the end what our salvation is. It starts by saying that, that mankind has sinned and they don't have any excuse that, that, that they've, they, they've all have sinned. And it, it goes on to say that if you're a, a, a Gentile, you've sinned. If you're a Jew, you've sinned. None of us can say we're, we're, we're anything other than a sinner. And then it goes on to tell us how it all works. But Romans chapter 7, and I've preached on this many times, Romans chapter 7 is the conflict that lies within humanity. Look at Romans chapter 7 and verse 18. For I know in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, for the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more that I than do it, than sin that, is, that dwelleth in me. I find then a law, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. I delight in the law of God after the inward man, I, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity of the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man who that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? In a nutshell, without, because if you get me started in the book of Romans, I, I can't hardly stop preaching. But in a nutshell, Paul says, I want to do good, but at every time I want to do good, evil seems to be present with me. He fights the flesh. He fights the carnal nature. He fights the lust of the eye and the pride of life and the lust of the heart. and He, he, he fights all of that, and the law doesn't help. The law just convicts. And, and I've, I've said this, and I'm going to keep saying it just because we always have new people. But, but the law, going back to, to Old Testament, Moses' law, I, I was reading the book of Joshua. Let, let, me, let me just show you uh, uh, something real quick. I was reading the book of Joshua a couple days ago, and at the end of Joshua's life, he, he spends some time right before he dies, and, you know, they've, they've come through the promised land. He's telling them that, that, you know, you need to make sure you continue to live for God. Don't, don't fail God now just because you, you've got what you need. And he says this. He says um, in, in Joshua 24 in verse 18, Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive you your transgressions or your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. 
He'll turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, they said, oh, no, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. He said, you're, you're, you're proving my point. And they said, we are witnesses. And then his very next statement jumped out at me. He says, then put away the foreign gods that are among you. With one mind, they said, we're going to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We'll do everything the Lord tells us. We're going to serve him. And, and Joshua says, you better be careful talking like that. You're going to be witnesses against your own self. And they said, oh, we're good. We're good. We're going to love God. And he says, well, then go put away the foreign gods that are among you. Because the law in itself cannot help us be holy. It cannot help us be righteous. It cannot save us. And this is the illustration, those of you that have been around me and, and heard me preach on the book of Romans, you've heard me say this. When you drive down the highway and you see one of those rectangle speed limit signs, for the majority of you, the moment you flash by that speed limit sign, that speed limit sign tells you you're breaking the law. Can I get a witness? Okay, some of you are honest. Some of you broke man's law, but now you just broke God's law because you're lying. It's all right. Brother Lee says he won't arrest you. But uh, you, you pass that, that, that speed limit sign, and it tells you, if in a, in a sense, you've sinned. You're speeding. But that sign cannot make you slow down. The only thing that will make you slow down is the threat of punishment. Most of you will slow down because you might get a ticket. Even then, most of you won't slow down because you passed the sign. It's because you already passed the cop who's turning around, and now you're going to slow down because you don't want a ticket. The law says this. If you tell a lie, you've sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says liars shall have their place in the lake of fire. And so all the law says, you big liar, you're going to fry. And so the law takes advantage of that, and the law says you've sinned, and Paul says, I fight it. I, I want to do good, but that, that flesh, that carnal nature within me is constantly pulling me to do bad, and the law doesn't help me at all. It's the law of the vacuum. When you want to do good, evil seems to be present with you. The, an, another glimpse, let me go back to where we started, where we drew our text from. Let me read it again, and then let me expound on this for a moment. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He said to himself, I will return to the house from whence I came out. When he comes, he finds it swept and garnished, and goeth he. He taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. They enter in, they dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. Now, I have to tell you the main application of this verse. So the first understanding of these verses lies in the opposition that Jesus was dealing with with the Pharisees. And so the very first application of Luke chapter 11 verse 24 is this. You cannot be neutral in this spiritual war. There's no Switzerland's when it comes to God and the devil. There's no, new, there's no neutral ground when it comes between the things of righteousness and the things of of evil. There are two spiritual forces at work in the war and in the world and you have to choose. 
Satan scatters and destroys. Jesus gathers and builds, builds. And you have to make a choice. And if you choose to make no choice, in reality, you've already chosen to be against God. Jesus illustrated this danger of neutrality by telling the story. The man's body was the demon's house, and for some unknown reason, the demonic tenant decided to leave his house and go elsewhere, and the man's condition improved. He's no longer got the demon inside. It's nice. He cleaned up, if you will. But he did not do anything with that empty space. And the law of the vacuum says if there's an empty space, something's going to fill it. And he remained neutral, if you will, and the demon returned with seven other demons worse than himself, and the condition of the man was abominable. Oswald Chambers wrote this, Neutrality in religion is always cowardice. God turns the cowardice of a desired neutrality into a terror. You have to choose a side. That's the first understanding of this verse. It's why I read that last verse, 27, Blessed is the womb that bore you, the breast that nursed you. And Jesus begins to call her out because taking sides with Jesus is much more than saying the right things. You can talk the talk all you want to talk, but if you don't walk the walk, then it's pointless. And Jesus said, the thing that matters most is hear his word and obey his word. That's, you know, in order for me to preach and and do things right, I have to give you the the number one uh, way to read and understand that verse. It's in the context of Jesus and his conflict with the Pharisees and going that. But there is a secondary meaning to this verse that mirrors the law of the vacuum. That when you clean out the bad, it seems that worse always tends to flood in. I don't want you to raise your hand. I don't want you to look at anybody. I don't want you to identify yourself at all, but I need you for just a moment to be actively involved and mentally connected right now. I want to ask you this question. How many of you have found it to be true when you tried to remove the sinful things in your life, you seem to sin more? I give you, I mean, I can say this, I can preach this because I've, I've walked the walk. I know what I'm talking about. You can come to an altar on Sunday night. You can repent. You can cry your eyes out. You can, you can, can, can cleanse yourself on the altar and Sunday night go home and it's as if you didn't repent at all. You're as worse that Sunday night as you were before church because nature abhors a vacuum. It's one thing to clean it up. It's one thing to say I want to get rid of it, but you've got to fill it with something else. I thank you, Sister Julie, for how you led us in worship uh, tonight and, and some of the songs you sang. And, and, and it's true. Jesus came to take away our sins. We know that. We preach that. We sing that. We believe that. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We understand that. We get that. Jesus washes away our sin. And 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 I'm thankful that Jesus removes the sin, removes the guilt that's associated with it. But listen to me. A clean house that remains empty 
only invites the sinfulness back in. It's the law of the vacuum. It's why I've watched far too many times, and I'd like to to record, people come and they repent of their sins. They're baptized in Jesus' name. They're washed by the blood of Jesus. But they never go any further. And invariably, it's hard to stick because the law of the vacuum comes in and they cleaned up. But then later you hear of them and they're worse than when they were before because of the law of the vacuum. But Jesus said, I've come to fill you. He he, he didn't just say, I've come to cleanse you. He said, I've come to cleanse you, but I've also come to fill you. Verses like, I indeed baptize you in water unto repentance. But this is John the Baptist saying, But he cometh after me that's mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. And he shall baptize you with Holy Ghost and with fire. Because John understood that he was just baptizing and it was a baptism of repentance and and a little bit of cleansing. But he said, If this is all you get, it's not going to last because the vacuum is present. But Jesus is coming and he's going to fill you with that Holy Ghost and with Fire, it's, it's the book of Acts chapter 1 that says you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. It's Acts chapter 2 when we begin to see that poured out and we begin to understand that you have to be filled. Can I tell you the best way to, to uh, uh, attack and push back and be protected from the pull of your flesh and from the temptation of sin? Be filled with the Holy Ghost. The best uh, attack, the best protection that you can have to walk with God and do the right thing and not fall away into those sinful desires, be full of the Holy Ghost. It's Ephesians chapter 3. For this cause I, verse 14, this cause I bow my knees unto the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant to you according to his riches of his glory to be strengthened by might with the spirit to the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, height, to know the love of God which passeth knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. I preached. Uh, I, I preached the other the other Sunday. Preached on on, on the pillars of our faith and the, that you got to have that foundation. We talked God and we talked about God who is everywhere at all times with all power and 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 a God that's everywhere. That that means there's no place that God is not, if you will. But you take a heart filled with God, there's no room for anything else. But you take a heart that's empty and you've not invited him in, you've not allowed him to fill your life and fill your heart, your mind, your soul, well then that's a vacuum. And nature abhors a vacuum. I I, I read another writer um, today, Charles E. Moore. He has a, a, a kind of a blog, I guess, and I haven't read through everything, but I liked what he said, and, and I want to I quote a, a, a paragraph or two. Nature abhors a vacuum, so does God, and so do we. As beings created in the image of God, we will never be satisfied with anything less than God. 
You ever heard someone, and, I, and I've said this, that we're all born with a God-shaped hole in our heart. Those of you that have kids, you get them those toys that, that have the different holes that are shaped different ways, and you, know, you got a triangle and a circle and a star and a, a square. They have different pegs or balls or blocks that mirror that, and so you know they learn their shapes. You got to put the star in the star. You got to put the rectangle in the rectangle, and you can't you can't fit them if they don't fit. The same is true in our life. I'm, I'm, I'll get back to Charles E. Moore in a moment, but we're all born with a God-shaped hole in our heart, and the only thing that will fill it is God Himself. You can fill it with anything else you want. You can fill it with. With hobbies, you can fill it with, with, with education, you can fill it with jobs, you can fill it with family, you can try to fill it with drugs and alcohol, and you can fill it with, with, with sexual things. You can do whatever you want to do, but it's never going to fit. Oh, you may be able to shoehorn it in, and it takes up a lot of space, but it's not it, because going back to Charles E. Moore, we're created in the image of God, we'll never be satisfied than anything less than God. Now, he takes it not... Let's walk his path. Thus, when an entire culture such as ours sells its soul on the altar of mammon, when everything around us shouts aloud that we have the right and the ability to live on our own terms apart from God and happiness is found in seeking pleasure and excitement, watch out. Demons of impurity and falsehood and hate and addiction and violence and mistrust come pouring in. The alarming rise of unspeakable crimes all in the name of self-expression is but a fruit of being disillusioned with the way things are. These are but a reflex reaction against a world that is sinking in the backwash of its own achievements. And they bring out into the open what we pretend is not there. The ultimate futility and the vanity of conspicuous consumption. We're desperate to fill ourselves with something, with anything, and such desperation will only grow as long as there is nothing real, nothing substantial, substantial to fill our lives with. The culture of earning and spending, the deadening effects of having to be constantly entertained, the spiritual veneer of fabricated religious experiences are no longer able to contradict the forces that lead otherwise normal people to do what was once thought unthinkable and unforgivable. That's a mouthful, but he's on, he's on to something. It's the law of the vacuum. You want to know why our society's where it is? You want to know why it just it, it runs amok? It's because there's nothing filling it, and so anything comes rushing in. So the, the question that I don't have time, it'd be a a whole nother sermon, but the question that I would have to ask you is, are you filled? Are you filled? Are you filled? Not just to say, well, I've repented of my sins and I've had them washed away, but have you been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost? And then the, the, the second thing is, is are you allowing that to be active? Because there is a third and final understanding of the law of the vacuum. And I'm going to Look at the words of Jesus. Given it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall be given to your bosoms. For with the same measure that you eat with all, it shall be measured unto you again. It's, it's 2 Corinthians 9 and 6. He that soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly, but he that soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. 
Now, we like to use those verses when it comes to giving, and rightfully so, because that's the original purpose of those verses, if you'll give to God. The, and all. But, but let's, let's talk about the law of the vacuum. Because in the law of the vacuum, um, you, you see this in, in every aspect uh, almost of, of our lives, that law of the vacuum is there. When, when something is poured out, it creates a vacuum, if you will, that will draw something in. Um, hoses work a lot like this. I know it's water pressure, but a lot of times it's, it's a part of vacuum. As that water goes through, it's pulling behind it because it's leaving a vacuum and it causes something to rush in. And so the, the, another and perhaps final understanding of all the vacuum can be a positive. I've been talking of the negative aspects of that, that when we leave ourselves empty and, and the enemy and, and lust and sin and, and all of that and our flesh come in, you know, that's the negative, but you can have a positive. The positive is, if you'll not just be filled with the Holy Ghost at one time, but use it. And, and using doesn't mean you, you, you run out of it, but the more you spend, the more you have access for it to come in. The more that you allow yourself to love as God loved, you're opening yourself up for the love of God to fill again. You can allow there to be a vacuum in your life but filled with the things of God rather than the things of the enemy. Why do we come to church multiple times a week? Well, because we understand the law of the vacuum. So, so we can use the law of the vacuum in a good sense. The more that you pour out of life with God, the more that you give of yourself, the more that you, you, you follow after the leading of God, the more that you, you pour out, you're able to get more in. A, a, a body of water that has no outlet becomes stagnant, it can be full, but what purpose is it to be full? Dead Sea is a great example of this. Dead Sea, I mean, it, I guess it's pretty, but what purpose does it have? It Hardly any life can go in it because it has no outlet. It's full, but it's stagnant. I would much prefer my life to not be stagnant. I want it to be full, but I'd also like it to be a constant flow. I give, he gives. I pour out, and he fills. I love, he fills. I witness fills, being filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Because what measure you give, it shall be given unto you. That's the positive law of the vacuum. How you live your life determine how you're filled. And so for some, perhaps the the uh, part you need to hold on to is the fact that you know you, you've done a, or you're trying to do a good job of cleaning up your life and I'm thankful for that if you're not filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost you're fighting the love of the vacuum and it's a losing battle and you need to be filled with the Spirit if you're here and you've been filled with the Spirit then I want to challenge you to stir up the gift 
gave you that spirit. He said, I'm doing it because I, I'm, I'm giving you the power to witness, the power to do the call of God. I'm, I'm empowering. I'm, I'm giving you that ability. I'm not going to just, you know, call you to do something and then not give you the ability to do it. And so if you've been filled with his holiness, his presence, then learn to use it so he can just keep filling you. Keep filling you. Keep filling you. I wonder if we could stand today. The thing is, is I can't answer that question for you. I can't even begin to understand where you be or not be. I, I could make assumptions, I guess, but that's a pretty dangerous thing to do. And so it is that I've got to allow it to be between you and God. And so I wonder just a few moments, you could spend some time examining life through prayer and talking to God and seeing where in your life is the law of the vacuum active? Is it active? You're, you keep fighting the, the pull of your flesh and the pull of, of, of that carnal nature. And it might be because you're, you're good at emptying. You're not good at letting God fill you. And if that's who you are, you need to make a change today. But if you're filled with the Spirit, then I'm asking you, are you pouring out from that Spirit? Are you giving from that well that He's placed inside of you? Because if you it just gives more capacity for God to keep pouring, God to keep moving, God to keep blessing. Open these altars. You can pray at your seat. You can go to the front. But I think we've got some time tonight where you can begin to talk to the Lord, begin to ask him, where are you in rest and when it comes to the law of the vacuum? Would you begin to pray, Lord?